Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon, and uh, this week uh, is something a little bit different. We're going to go around the world with Phil Yates. Who would have thought we'd be saying that? Um, we're go- what we're going to do is look at some of the players from outside the UK who've made an impact on the game down the years. I'm going to start, Phil, uh, in Canada, because about 30 years ago, they had a lot of top players, didn't they? They had Bourbon, Stevens, Werbeneck, etc., etc., and, and you knew a lot of them. What were, the, what were the Canadians like? Well, as characters and as people, you couldn't wish for anything better. They were tremendous. Um, Jim Watch, of course, as well, a good friend of mine I've done a lot of commentary with, got to two world quarterfinals. The Canadian team won the World Cup as well. Now, of course, they're off the face of the planet in terms of snooker. It's a, a terrible loss, really, because apart from being characters, they were really good players. Of course, Cliff Thorburn, the first ever non-British or Irish player to win the World Championship in 1980, won the Masters as well on multiple occasions. We really do need players from North America to emerge onto the circuit, but right now there's just no one. They came from a pretty tough background, didn't they? That North American Q-sport scene. It was pretty rough and ready. Absolutely. <laughs> Cliff played all over the country, not hustling. Hustling's when you lose on purpose and get someone into a false sense of security that you know good and then take their money. He was genuinely playing for money and doing really well. He was born in British Columbia in Victoria and basically travelled the length and breadth of Canada, which is a, a mightily big country, playing not just snooker but also pool, learning the game that way, the apprenticeship, and playing all through the night against tough opponents, giving star handicaps, all that kind of stuff. It was a hard existence, especially in a Canadian winter, which can be very harsh indeed. So when he came onto the circuit, he was battle-hardened already, and that's why he was such a formidable match player. Yes, I mean, not for nothing was he known as the grinder. He was tough, wasn't he? He was hard as nails. He was, and I don't think he ever played slowly to take someone off. That wasn't his way. He was just genuinely slow all the time. That's how he approached the game, because he was so cautious. It wasn't a case of uh, trying to gain an advantage by playing slowly, but there was something hypnotic about him. It was a bit like Griffiths as well. And of course they played the <laughs> epic match at the World Championship when it finished at 10 to 4 in the morning and remains the latest ever finish. And you have to assume the way the players of today go about their business. 
it will remain the latest ever finish at the Crucible. Clive was there, wasn't he? I'm not sure he's ever recovered from that, actually. But, of course, Kirk Stevens was very exciting. I mean, he had the white suit. He was young, good-looking, and, and made that famous 147 at the Masters. He was sort of the pin-up boy of that era, wasn't he? Well, Kirk Stevens was very much the pin-up boy. Obviously, Bill Werbenick wasn't. Um, <laughs> you need a big poster, I think. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And yet, their careers were very similar. They were very high-profile for a large number of different reasons. And yet, despite this phenomenal profile they had in the 80s, you speak to people now and they know Kirk Stevens and Bill Werbenick, despite that high profile, neither of them won a big tournament. Mm. Werbenick, he's always one whose, whose name is brought up when people reminisce as, as sort of broadsheet columnists do most weeks about how great snooker used to be and it isn't now. They're, that's sort of whole agenda that they have. But actually, for me, I remember watching him. He wasn't that great to watch, was he? He was pretty methodical. He was, absolutely. No doubt about it. Stevens was definitely the most attractive of, of that bunch of Canadians at that time. Oh, no, Bill was a hard nut like Cliff, mm. but he was uh, tough to play. I'll tell you what, he was an extraordinary player in terms of uh, cue ball power. He could screw that ball back in, play the, the shot to nothing, pot of red and screw back into bulk. Did that on numerous occasions. I remember once the late Alex Siggins was touting around for someone to play for money at Pontins, and uh, Bill said, I'll play you, and he absolutely cleaned Higgins out. Mm. Tough but, competitor. But also, he's probably one of the only players who could outdrink Alex as well. Oh, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> well, let's face it, Bill Werbenick had drunk Eddie Sinclair. That's mm. all you need to know. They had a, a drinking contest, and he literally drank Eddie under the mm. table, literally. And then I think it was sort of like 40 pints each and, and he, he won on the last pint or something exactly yeah. Eddie was finished Bill got up right as rain and said what we're going to do now I know we'll go down the pub and have a drink <laughs> I mean th these aren't exaggerated no. stories the other thing with Werbenick of course was for one year because he was based in Britain he was paying British income tax for one year he claimed his lager against his income tax bill as a, a necessary expense for his job because he wasn't able to take the uh, beta blocker Indoral. Uh, it was supposed to have quelled an hereditary tremor in his Q-arm. Wasn't able to take the Indoral because the beta blocker became part of the IOC uh, banned drugs. So consequently, had to do something else about it. So he was drinking copious amounts of lager and he was claiming for one year, I know for certain, against his income tax. The other thing was, of course, back in those days, Morning starts were very, very unusual. Basically, it was the Crucible and that was it. So when he played at the Crucible and he was on in the morning session, he had to get up at 6 o'clock in the morning to drink enough beer to be yeah. able to play. Proper sportsman, you see, prepare, <laughs> preparing for it. Well, I know someone who... Because he lived in a, a sort of mobile home for a time and, and someone went round, I think, to interview him and, and went to wash their hands or something in the sink and they turned the tap on and he had literally a beer coming out the tap. I mean, literally had beer on tap. That's right, absolutely. Lager <laughs> coming out the taps. It was just <laughs> extraordinary. The last... A couple of matches I remember seeing him play in the World Qualifiers at the Norbrook Castle Hotel in Blackpool. The first one was against Ian Black, who was a legendary drinker Scottish himself. Player, yeah. And they went one frame between them. They went to the toilet five times <laughs> in one frame. So under this new guidelines now about going to the, yeah. the toilet very sparingly. God knows whatever they were done then. But after that match, he won that just about scraped through. Then he had to play a, a very youthful Nigel Bond, who basically wiped the floor with him. And afterwards he came in and he said, well, I've just drunk 12 pints of extra strong lager and had six double whiskies and I'm still not drunk, you know. <laughs> and I always remember at the time the, the Sun had a, a guest doctor column, Dr Vernon Coleman, the guy was called, who was appearing on TV over here on a regular basis. And he documented 
all of the possible side effects of drinking so much alcohol that Bill faced. Mm. Um, and I suppose the doctor was proved right in the end because Bill yeah. left us in untimely fashion. Yes, it was rather sad, actually, towards the end. But just after that sort of era, the Thorburn, Stevens, Werbeneck era, Elaine Robidoux would have been the next sort of top Canadian. And Bob Chapron as well, who won the British Open in 1990, out of nowhere, really. Elaine, I always found a lovely bloke. Just absolutely smashing to be around. I was talking about Alain earlier on today, actually, because we were talking about the German Open in Osnabrück and the British Army camp there in 1996. I was talking about it to Mark Williams. It was notable for him because he was involved in a match against Ken Doherty where the heating system broke in the arena and there was an interval of one hour, 40 minutes, which <laughs> must be a record. But Alain beat John Higgins in the semi-final there and lost to Ronnie O'Sullivan in the final. Yeah, he was a great guy, Alain. He made a one four seven break very early on in his career. Of course, his career was prematurely ended, if you like, by the fact that his beloved queue was vandalised and he was never the same again. Well, yeah, vandalised by the person who actually made the queue. What happened was he, he Elaine had put a, a Riley logo on, you know, pretty inobtrusive, just because he was sponsored by it, he put it on the queue, and he, he needed a minor repair done to the queue, so he sent it back to this old bloke who just took complete offence for whatever reason, broke it up and, and couldn't be repaired. And Elaine, he didn't win a single match the next year and just basically slid down the rankings. Well, that season, uh, back then, of course, the rankings were only revised once every 12 months. That season, after the queue was broken, he went into the campaign, I think it was seventh in the world rankings, and as you say, he never won a single match. It was remarkable. Also remarkable was Chaperon winning that British Open. It was the, the random draw, but even so, I mean, he must be one of the, well, possibly the most surprising ranking tournament winner. Well... Two things that stick in my mind about the British Open there at the Assembly Rooms in Derby that year, 1990 I believe it was, he beat Alex Higgins in the final, Higgins was a big favourite even though Higgins was past his best by that time. Chaperon won it, pure grit, but he was shaking so much, it was incredible, shaking on the shot like you wouldn't believe. The other thing I remember about it was, and this ties us back to someone we've just been talking about, I believe he beat Robbie Doo in the last 16, having needed multiple snookers. Yeah, four or something like that. Three I think four. it was three yeah. or four snookers. Yeah. So basically he was out. Once he got through that, I think he had a new lease of life. Well, everything else is a bonus, and he went on to win it. We know someone who... That was the last leg in their accumulator, wasn't it? And they were, they were on Robbie Doo, but we, we won't go into that. They might be listening. But we're going to... Um, well, I've not planned this trip too well, but we're going to leave Canada and go to Australia, because that, again, was another... It still is a, a bit of a hotbed with Neil Robertson, but in the sort of 70s and 80s they had Eddie Charlton a couple of others Warren King John Campbell a few others Eddie though was the sort of the star name wasn't he well Eddie really should have won the world championship he had numerous opportunities came very close on one occasion against Ray Reardon I don't think any snooker player in the history of the game has wanted to win more <laughs> than Eddie Charlton did also I don't think any top level professional snooker player has ever played with less side spin on the cue ball hardly ever put any on at all but boy he was a tough nut to crack very good at all sports. Uh, he played pool as well, swimmer, boxer, you name it, he was involved in it. He came so close to winning the world title, and it was ironic. Towards the end of his career, in the first ever World Seniors Championship, he should have won that as well. I think he was 4-2 up on Cliff Wilson at Trentham Gardens in Stoke, ended up losing 5-4. Bitterly disappointed about that, and obviously bitterly disappointed about missing out on the big one also. Imagine if you were a referee in the early 80s and you got your, your sheet for the day, I'm doing Eddie Charlton versus Cliff Thorburn, you wouldn't exactly sort of jump for joy, would you? Well, I remember on one occasion they played each other in the first round of the World Championship and it was inevitably a very, very late finish. Charlton came back to win 10-9. It was after 3 o'clock in the morning when the press conference started <laughs> and someone said, well, Eddie, you know, don't you have some kind of responsibility to the crowd? 
And his response was, expletive the crowd. <laughs> and expletives were very much a part of Charlton's game. If he was under the regime today, where they got fined for swearing, he'd be, he'd be bankrupt. Yeah, yeah. I remember a match he played against a South African at Blackpool. Very low-profile match, just sticks in the mind. In the European Open qualifiers, Francois Ellis was his opponent. Ellis had never qualified for the final stages of an event before, and he was 3-1 up to get to the main venue. And I went inside to have a look at it, because I was writing for one of the South African papers at the time. And Eddie's language was nothing short of a disgrace. <laughs> but he ended up winning the match 5-3 and the rest is history. Well, speaking of history, I mean, he was the first player to make a century at the Crucible and he's the only player, as we, as we record this, ever to be whitewashed there. And his career went on a long time. I mean, he was playing into his 60s, wasn't he? Absolutely, yeah. And he was playing either in exhibitions competitively or playing pool or whatever right up until pretty much the, the time of, of his death. A typical Australian in the sense that Winning was just so important to him. I suppose he was likened, actually, uh, to a contemporary, Bill Laurie, mm. one of the hard-nosed uh, Australian opening batsmen of the time, so hard to get out. Um, Charlton was so hard to beat. I remember on one occasion we were at Deauville, a European Open, 1989, and he was playing John Virgo, who was not the best-tempered of individuals <laughs> at the time, even though he was chairman of the WPBSA and he should have been setting a better example. But Charlton was clearing up to beat him, and it was one of those where he was potting all of the colours into the same side of the table, so brown into the yellow bag, blue into the middle pocket on the yellow side, pink into the top left-hand corner as you're looking at the table, and he turned around at the end to shake John's hand, and John had gone, he left. <laughs> but in that time, we go back 30 years, you had Eddie, you had Warren King, John Campbell, good little World Cup team. Very much so, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Uh, Warren King, of course, got to a world-ranking event final in 1990, I believe it was, against Steve James. Didn't win. We must also say about Australia that it's produced the most dominant Cuban in the history of Q sports. Walter Lindrum yeah, yeah. was a genius, and yeah. I think he was better at his sport than anyone's ever been at either billiards, snooker, pool, carrom, or whatever. So... It has got quite a history, and now, of course, it's in the hands and the very capable hands of Neil Robertson, and what an ambassador he is for the country down under and also for the game in general. Well, we'll come on to Neil in a minute, but because bridging the eras was Quinton Ham, uh, who was uh, always described as a character, which always sort of carries certain ramifications, that, that phrase. Um, very talented player, very, very talented player, and, and could have done really well out of the game, couldn't he? But sadly, his attitude was not good enough. Oh, no way. I mean, one of the most talented players never to win a world ranking event, indeed never to be in a final. Uh, but he just wasn't cut out for it, was he? The temperament just wasn't there, the personality, some of the things he did, reprehensible. And we were talking about Quinton the other day, weren't we, about how he went home in the middle of the World Championship at one point. To Australia. Yeah, yeah and, and also there was a tournament, I believe it was the Scottish Open he was involved in, got to a latter stage of that. The next week, the World Championship was beginning, and he went back to Australia for a few days before that. I mean, you could never predict what he was going to do on or off the table. I, I actually quite liked it. One of the reasons was that I was doing the Australian Associated Press, and you knew there'd always be a story, and of course, famously at the Crucible, he uh, offered out Andy Hicks that, that, that row, and, and Hicks beat him, knocked him out of the top 16, and there'd been a bit of needle throughout the match, and a few words were said at the end, and Quinton famously said to Andy, you're short and bald, and always will be, and I'll fight you out for 50 grand if you like. Andy didn't take the, the offer, but of course Mark King, for whatever reason, decided to, to step in. They had the fight at, at Bethnal Green 
uh, York Hall pot whack, it was called. This, this is all true. I'm not making this yeah, up, but for new listeners, this is all true. And of course, everyone thought King would beat him because Mark's a big bloke oh, and quite yeah. handy. Somehow, Quinton won on points. Well, I think one of the most successful things that Quinton Han ever did in his career was rile Andy Hicks because <laughs> he was one of the most mild mannered individuals. Yeah, yeah. So, to show a display of anger on the floor of the crucible in front of everyone, and the referee, Laurie Annadale, thankfully yeah. stepped in very yeah. quickly. But for Hicks to get riled up just shows you how irritating Han could be. OK, well, let's go on to Neil then, Neil Robertson, who uh, thankfully is a little bit more professional, and, and what a player. I mean, we've seen this season, obviously, Champions Champions, UK Championship, played great at the Masters. I mean, took a terrific performance by Judd Trump to beat him. And you can see Neil has really developed from quite a raw potter, as a lot of them are, into the all-round player. When he came onto the circuit, people were saying, he's got a future. I thought, yeah, maybe, top 32. And then all of a sudden, he blossomed. And I think he's one of these players, a little bit like Charlton, who loves to win. But he's also prepared to take advice. I think one part of his game that might have been lacking for a while was break-building Nouse. Took on board a lot of advice from Stephen Hendry, who was an extraordinary break-builder. And ever since then, he's been... A phenomenally heavy scorer. I love to watch him play, Neil Robertson. He just puts so much into it, and he plays with so much grace. And he's also versatile. He can scrap it out in the disjointed frames. Very good defensively. And as we say, when it comes to making centuries, at the moment, I don't think anyone is his equal. I've commentated on thousands of matches over the years, certainly hundreds. And I think one of the highlights for me in the box was when I commentated for Eurosport with Neil Folds a couple of years ago with the World Championship when he made his 100th 100 mm. of the season against Judd Trump. Yeah. What an achievement. If somebody said to me 10, 15 years ago, someone is going to make 100 centuries in a season, I would have said it was physically impossible. I think Hendry had the record for quite some time with 53, and I thought that was you know, going to take some beating. But to make over 100 centuries in a season, I think that's perhaps even more than his world title in 2010. Neil Robertson's phenomenal, most phenomenal achievement. And I think some players, even with Stephen Hendry giving advice, they sort of they don't like people telling them what they should do. And they, they would say, oh, what does he know? You know, I'm not going to listen to him. But Robertson took it on the chin. Hendry was very blunt with him. He said, I think, you know, you, you break build like an amateur. You need to do this, that and the other. And rather than just taking offence, he actually listened, knuckled down. And as you say, I mean, that, that record of 100 centuries is incredible. Yeah, absolutely incredible. And I really do think you can never guarantee anything when it comes to who will win what let alone who will win the World Championship. But before the end of his career, I would be very surprised if Robertson didn't win the World title, at least mm. on one more occasion. Absolutely. Well, we're going to leave Australia. Uh, not that we were actually in it, but we're going to leave Australia and go to Thailand. I think a lot of people who maybe are new to snooker maybe don't realise just how vibrant the scene was in Thailand. It was kind of the China of its day in the 90s, wasn't it? I was there, I saw it happen, and I'll tell you what, it was unbelievable. Watana in the early 90s, well, very much as a rookie professional got to the final of what was then the Asian Open played in a TV studio in Bangkok uh, I think it was in 1989 or 88, anyway, regardless, he got to the final lost to Stephen Hendry, but in the early 90s he got to number 3 in the world rankings and we had consecutive ranking events over there uh, which he won um, and the first one 1994 Basically, the whole country was just enraptured by what was going on. And I remember he was in the semi-final, I think it was in 94, playing on the evening. And we'd had a, a lengthy tea time session, as it was over there. We'd done our stories, sent them back to Britain, and we needed to pop out to get some food. And where the venue was, we had to walk down this 
well, Red Light District, or Soy <laughs> Cowboy, which anybody who's yeah. been to Bangkok knows is rather a lively place. And as you walk down this street to get to the restaurant where we were going, every bar, bar if you can yeah, call it yeah, that, yeah. <laughs> had got the TV on, and every TV was tuned into the match, <clears throat> wanting as match. So you've got the, the girls dancing around the poles there, rather scantily clad, all watching the snooker. Everybody in the bar was watching the snooker. That's not our traditional audience. Well, <laughs> at the time, Thailand had a population of approximately 60 million. And we were told that the 94 final attracted 20 million viewers. So that's a third of the population. And of course, in that country at that time, a lot of people didn't have access to a TV at all. So it was a remarkable figure. And then, of course, Watton beat Steve Davis in what was a classic final. Still the best match I think I've ever commentated on. Then the following year, he beat uh, O'Sullivan in the final. So that really set up the Thai snooker boom. Everyone assumed... James, world number three, winning these titles, got to the semi-final of a world championship as well, won the world match play. Everyone assumed that Thailand, because there was so much interest in the game, would produce a whole series of world-class players, and it never really happened. And I think a lot of people assumed he would be world champion, didn't they? But of course it was the Hendry White era, and I mean it was hard to win. Yeah, absolutely. He got to the semi-final, I think it was in 97, the year that Hendry then lost subsequently to Ken Doherty in the <coughs> final. It was a great shame he didn't win the World Championship. I think it would have done wonders for the sport in general. One thing about Watton, I must say, one attribute he had, which was just top class. When he was in trouble and he was break building, he's potting into the middle pockets at acute angles. Sensational. Didn't you, uh, didn't you miss his 147 at, at Derby? Oh, don't talk to me about <laughs> it. Anyone who knows me knows that I put work yeah. first. I always do. I'm never late. On this occasion, I was late. So and they were rare in those days, weren't they? I think I was only like the fourth or fifth ever made. Absolutely. I mean, in, in you know mitigating circumstances, I was uh, given a lift there, and the person who gave me the lift turned up late, so it wasn't entirely my fault, but I shouldn't have done that anyway. Turned up, walked in, and someone said, oh, James Watton has had a 147. Oh, God, right now. So now I'm on high alert. Then I've walked into the press room, and someone's told me that not only had he made a 147, but his father had been shot and yeah. fat fatally injured. Now I'm thinking, I can't believe this. And I was probably an hour after it had finished. Of course, you know, it didn't sit too well with the, one of the people I was working with, but at least, uh, you know, we got the story out in the end. But, well, at least yeah. there was no internet or anything. There was no Twitter. I mean, it would have been out immediately, wouldn't it? Absolutely. Well, that was nearly a quarter of a century ago. What an extraordinary thing, though. I think his manager, Tom Moran, had told him that his father had been shot before yeah. the break, but he didn't know how seriously. And then, of course, he made the 147, euphoric, came back into the dressing room and was told his father had died. Mm. OK, well, that's Thailand. We're going to sort of... Continental Europe, we're going to sort of take as, as a whole... Um, well, we're going to go first to Malta and another incredible character, Tony Drago. I mean, what a, what a player. And the incredible thing about Tony is he's been playing professionally for 30 years. He's not got any uh, slower, has he? He's playing the same pace. Well, actually, there's a link between Thailand and Malta. One thing we must mention, I think, is Teb Chara Nu. Who, former world amateur champion who plays so entertainingly. I mm. love watching him play. Let's hope he, he has success and you know restores the, the glory days to Ty Snooker. And Drago's a bit like that. He's so entertaining to watch. Past his 50th birthday now. Yeah. When he plays in the World Seniors, you know he's going to play exactly the same as he did when he was 20. Mm. The only difference then was when he was 20, he could hide behind his cue case. He was so thin. Mm -hmm. Now he'd not, have, the not the case now. Not the case yeah. now. But I've seen Drago not only play snooker ridiculously quickly, but play top-level pool. Uh, it's an extraordinary clip. I've seen him run racks against top-class opponents in very 
high-profile events in less than a minute. A bit emotional, though, it's fair to say. Oh, <laughs> he should have won so much more than he has. I think, for me, the match I'll always remember involving Tony Drago was the first ever Rothmans Malta Grand Prix. Richard Bellani, Wilfred Sultana um, and Joe Zammett, <coughs> the three uh, Maltese yeah. promoters, decided Malta should have big-name snooker, and so they started this quite small invitation event at the time uh, in Marsa Scala, lovely hotel there on the coast. And in the first ever Rothmans Malta Grand Prix, Drago played... Uh, John Parrott. Hang on a minute, Mark Williams is asking you a question. Do you want a drink? Oh, uh, no, I'm fine. Right, thank you, Mark. Cheers. We just yeah. reminisce of here. Little cameo there. Yeah. Go on. yeah. So, in the first ever final, uh, Drago played really well to get to the final, and he played John Parrott in the final. Parrott was 5 1 down. Parrott, for all intents and purposes, was going to lose. Drago in the balls in the next frame. Then came the Achilles heel. Mr. Red with the rest. Couldn't hardly pot a ball after that. You know the rest. John Parrott won the match, 7-6. And as soon as the match was over and the two <laughs> players went back to their chairs, Drago was sitting there crying like a baby. And virtually everyone in the crowd was coming up. And of course they knew him. Bad luck, Tony, arm round him. Woo-hoo, you know, crying. It was a horrible scene. But I think that was just a, a metaphor for his career in general. Mm. So near and yet so far. Yeah, of course, he was a top 16 player, very good player at his best, incredible to watch. At his worst, you know, you, you couldn't watch really. Um, one country people might be surprised we're going to mention Iceland. They've had a few sort of players, haven't they? They had one at the Crucible, Christian Helgeson, who was a very enigmatic character, I think it's fair to say. No one knew anything about him. Well, a, a mystery man. He hardly said anything in press conferences. He did actually unwittingly supply a very good story there because. Having qualified, he nearly missed out on the Crucible because there was a, a strike um, mm. amongst the, the airlines out in Iceland, which meant he almost didn't get the, uh, the flight over here to play. Of course, he did in the end. But so many players and so many characters. I think a former Spice Girls boyfriend yeah. who became the Icelandic heavyweight boxing champion. <laughs> I, I know this is hard to believe, but uh, I, think, yeah. I think he played on the tour for a year or two. Yeah. And there was another guy called, I think it was Brynmar Valdemarsson. He had one who, leg. Who had one leg, yeah. and who <laughs> was the inspiration for one of the greatest ever intros written uh, in The Observer. Uh, it was at the World Masters. And the person who wrote the intro said, when a three-times world champion <laughs> plays an Icelandic amateur with one leg, there can only be one result. Brynmar Valdemarsson beat John Spencer 6-3. <laughs> and I don't think I've ever seen an intro that's no. any better than that after all these years. I saw him play in, a, in an amateur, but he was a good player. Um, but you, you wonder sort of what, this, what the scene is there now. I'm sure they still play because they're in the IBSF, but um, it just shows you, you know, the, there are all these little countries that you maybe don't expect. Finland's another one, obviously Robin Hull. He's, one of his parents is from London, so he's learned his trade there. But another player who could have really done things other than the fact he got, he got ill. Robin... <coughs> Had loads of talent. Nearly made a one four seven in the World Championship qualifiers, didn't he? Missed the final yeah. black. Big on Robin Hall. I thought he he could have done a lot. I mean, obviously he's played at the Crucible. He's had a reasonable career, but you're right that the illness really slowed him down. What's not well known about Finland is that Mika Immonen, who's mm. a former World Nine Ball Pool champion, he's quite a handy snooker player. He's made century breaks. So uh, yeah, I think there's a, a vibrant scene there in Scandinavia in general. Of course, from Norway we had Bjorn Larange. Yes who famously in one World Amateur Championship played Steve Lemons, so it was <laughs> Lorange and Lemons, yeah. said the bells of St Clemens. Yeah, I bet you were loving that, weren't you? Um, we're we're going to cat Ireland because it's outside the UK and obviously 
very much uh, close to it in terms of the scene there and only an hour on a plane. Um, I suppose we've got to start with Ken, haven't we, their greatest ever player? First ever player from the Republic of Ireland to win a world ranking event. Most people assume it's Patsy Fagan, but of course when he won the 1977 UK Championship, it wasn't a world ranking event because it was only open to UK residents or UK and Ireland residents. So Ken winning the Welsh Open was a big breakthrough, and then of course he won the World Championship, that big parade in Dublin. He's had a lot of success, Ken. He's now a part of the, of the BBC commentary team. Good guy. The one thing about him that will be his greatest legacy, I don't think anybody has been a better ambassador. He's been wonderful for the game, on and off the table. Faultless. Yeah, him and Davis probably. Him and Steve Davis will be the two. I mean, the story I always love about Ken's world title triumph is famously his mother, Rose, was too nervous ever to watch him, either in an arena or on TV. Just couldn't do it. Too nervous. So even when he was in the final against Hendry at the Crucible, she went out for the evening on a bike, I think it was, and she got a puncture. So she had to sort of push the bike home. Didn't know what was happening. Met someone on the way and, and who said, your son's world champion. You know, brilliant. So a few weeks later, Ken got her the tape of the finals, she obviously hadn't seen it, and she was still too nervous to watch it, even though she knew the result. She, would, she couldn't watch it. She was just, but of course she had the trophy on the TV and it, it was terrific. Well, you helped Ken write his biography and it was a very good book. I, I really enjoyed reading it. And I think copy's still available. Yeah. yeah. What came through from, from that book was just how difficult his upbringing was, yeah. how close the family is, and what winning that title meant, not just to him, hmm. but to the community where he was born in Ranelagh, and also to the Republic of Ireland in general. Mm. Fergal O'Brien, of course, is still very much uh, going strong. Another one who absolutely loves it, doesn't he? Just loves playing. Well, when he won the British Open, I think it was just great for all of the the sluggers on the <laughs> tour who, who mm. battle away in the middle ranks, you know, trying for one moment in the sun. We mustn't forget, of course, O'Brien came very close to winning the Masters. He was well yeah. ahead against yeah. Paul Hunter in the final yeah. and eventually was beaten. Uh, but yes, so Brian won that British show. Everybody thought that final would be Dewar actually against Anthony Hamilton. It was anything but. Um, what was terrible was that when he came back to defend the title shortly afterwards, I think he was shunted away onto a, a non-televised table, which wasn't the best, was it really? I think he deserved more than that. I like Fergal. He, he rings every last ounce of ability out of himself and, as you say, just loves the game. But it's interesting, isn't it, because they represented Ireland in the World Cup in the 90s and they're still as we speak 20 years on they're still the top two ranked players from the Republic well the 1996 World Cup in Thailand uh, was the one where Scotland had the, the dream team and of course it was because McManus then Alan McManus yeah. was still right at the top of the game you got Stephen Hendry who was you know, wonderful and John Higgins as well so they were the outstanding favourites to win it and they did but only after sort of putting down a, a very hard challenge from, from Ireland because Ireland had beaten England in the semi-finals 10-9 and it was Ken who won the anchor leg as it were I can't remember how lengthy the frame was but it was certainly over 50 minutes against Ronnie O'Sullivan mm. so they went into the final against all the odds and didn't quite pull it off but it was a great performance We're going to end uh, perhaps inevitably in China which of course is the, has been the great coming market the last 10 years um, there have been tournaments here and there but I guess the one Ding won 11 years ago now China Open in Beijing that, that sparked the boom didn't it most certainly so much I remember about that he played the first round or the last 32 anyway beat Peter Ebden 5-0 a journalist from China said so Peter how come you win world championship yeah. <laughs> they couldn't quite work out how a teenager from their own country had beaten a relatively recent world champion but then of course he beat Ken Doherty 6-0 yeah. yeah. 
in the in the semi-finals after being the beneficiary of a real big fluke, I remember, against Stuart Bingham. So now he plays Stephen Hendry in the final, so we think, well, you know, it's been good while it's lasted. Hendry will bury him. Hendry led 4-1. Then he went for an ill-advised red down the side cushion. Didn't clear up, and that was that, basically. He ran away with from there and... But we should say because he, he was only he turned eighteen that week. He, you know, he was very young and, and not used to the pressure or anything like that. And, and but just just produced an incredible series of results. And as a wild card, yeah. he didn't yeah. officially qualify for a penny piece. I think he was given recompense by the Chinese authorities, and quite rightly so, for what was a, a remarkable achievement. But to win that in front of his own people in weighed down with so much expectation, particularly towards the end of the tournament, was just remarkable. I remember that the mayor of Beijing was there and all of his yeah. finery on yeah. the front row. and Most teenagers would have crumbled and ding, prospered. We were there, Dave, at the Beijing University Students' Gymnasium when he, when he won that. And I remember we were in the arena five minutes afterwards waiting for the press conferences to start. And I said to you, and you said the same thing to me, this is the start of the mm. revolution. We expected Ding to be massively successful, and he has been. But we also expected, because of the viewing figures and the interest in the game over there... Well, the number of people as well. Exactly. Pure mathematics suggested 10, 15 world-class players were going to emerge from China. Obviously, Liang Wenbo's done pretty well. Zhang Xiaogudong has got to a, a ranking final as well, and the two young teenagers this year won the, the World Cup. But the revolution, the explosion of world-class talent from the People's Republic... Never happened no. like we expected it. No, the thing about when he when he won it, you mentioned he didn't get any prize money, official prize money. He actually went down in the rankings because he didn't get any ranking points. But, and this was just after Eddie Charlton that we mentioned earlier had gone up despite having died. He died, and they didn't take him off the list, and someone else retired. He went up two places, which was a bit embarrassing for all concerned. Well, I just told you about the intro there with Bryn Mawr, Donald Marson, and John Spencer. I think the greatest ever headline in snooker scene, Clive's headline, was to do with Eddie Charlton going up in the rankings after he died. And the headline was, he is risen. Yeah, 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 that's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. But we were there the year after, weren't we? And I think there was a sort of expectation from the fans, because he, he won the UK Championship in between, so he was still winning, that he was going to win everything. But I remember, I think you remember this as well, they advertised he was on the wrong table. They said he was on table three, which was, would have been unusual because it was a small table. So there was this massive crowd for, for a sort of match. I think it was someone like Joe Swale, David Rowe, or something like that. A match that, in fairness to those two, was not going to pack out in China. So there's all these people gathered around waiting, and then it's announced at the last minute, oh, sorry, he's actually on table one, and there's an absolute stampede to table one. And we, we actually saw a fist fight, didn't we, for the last seat. We saw people punching each other. Well, we caught what was going yeah. to happen. And so being we went know, into what? mischievous, we went into what? <laughs> And what I remember thinking was, thank God they don't really implement all that much health and safety yeah. here, because had it been in Britain, oh. the whole tournament would have been shut down. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. was just remarkable. I think had it been a ship, it might have capsized, because <laughs> the whole sort of balance of the arena was changed. Mm. A lot of players um, have done very well in China, but there are some who, who do struggle. They go out there and they, the jet lag, or just the actual the thought of travelling that far. It's not for everyone, is it? Well, I remember Paul Hunter went to China on one occasion and played Ken Doherty. And I think in five frames he scored 13 points. Mm. It can happen, it can really. And of course, you can go all the way there and play someone who's in inspirational form. Mark Williams is in the room with us now, just offered to buy us a drink. I remember he played Jamie Cope out there in one tournament. And Cope was just knocking them in off the lampshades. No one could have possibly beaten him the way he played. You know, 6,000 miles, thank you very much. I'm on my way home. Um, now, of course, there's lots of snooker in China. I think people are more 
accustomed to it. But when we first went out there, it was a, a really big adventure. Yeah, we were at Mission Hills, weren't we? Shenzhen. This was before Ding won that, one of the ranking events there. And uh, I've seen to remember Stephen Hendry had to be barricaded in the pressure because the fans, I mean, he was a big, big name, Hendry, wherever he went. And they, they wanted a piece of him. He had to be locked in for his own safety. That's right, absolutely, yeah. And uh, I think he was glad to be uh, kept away. They weren't doing anything untoward, but it was just a, a case of, uh, you know, his personal safety, really. And, uh, yeah, they were mobbing him, weren't they? The other thing, of course, about that Mission Hills uh, tournament, we kept hearing this dog bark, yeah, didn't we, in the yeah, press room? We yeah. thought a guard dog was uh, looking after us late at night, yeah. and it turned out to be a recording. It was a tape, yeah. That's right. <laughs> it was. But that, that's the other thing. I mean, they're, they're very enthusiastic, the fans. You see, like, the, 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 pre, the promo day with the red carpet and everything. But then when it starts, quite often there's not many people there, and they basically can't afford the tickets. I think one of the great shames of modern-day snooker is that people want to see snooker in China badly, and yet the pricing structure of tickets is utterly ludicrous. Mm. The problem is, local promoters obviously sell the tickets and they gain from it financially, but the pricing structure just, it's, it's insane. Mm. You're talking about here for a, a semi-final or a quarter-final on that front row of seats, which is always empty, you're talking about a, a bigger price tag than the, for the final of the World Championship at the Crucible. Quite often, venues are reasonably well packed, but you never see the people in there because they're on the up in the up in the up in the gods, as they say, yeah. up in the theatre, well back. So you can't actually see who's in there. Yeah, it's it's a real shame. I think you might have been the first person to write the story that the World Championship could possibly go to China because we were out there and there were, there were discussions, and at the time the game was not in great health and. There was a suggestion that they, World Snook would just have to take the money. But, of course, what happened was that people kept believing that, even though the, the chances of it happening have receded and receded, particularly Barry, who, who wants it at the Crucible. At the time, we were told by the Games governing body, who, obviously not the current regime, that there was a possibility that the World Championship could go to China. Now, you're not going to ignore a story like that. Mm. I'm writing for the Times, so they want serious copy. They don't want anything uh, of a frivolous nature. So I thought it was an ideal story. We got the quotes to back it up. I think what it was, the WPBSA at the time used that as a bargaining tool against British venues, and Sheffield in particular, who were afraid yeah. to lose the championship. That's their prerogative. Now, I don't think there's any real chance of the championship going over there, do you? I mean, they would have to put in so much money. Yeah, and the boom has, has, the boom has sort of come and gone. It's still very popular, but the, the amount of tournaments sort of peaked. They had five ranking events. It's just come down a little bit, hasn't it? It's still a very important market, but, you know, booms don't last forever. We know that from this country. And snooker booms overseas, pretty much dependent on the success of one or two players from that particular country. We talked about James Wattener. Mm. When he fell down the rankings, interest waned. Now, Ding's going down the rankings. There's a possibility, if he doesn't have a good second half of the season, he's going to have to qualify for the Crucible this yeah. year, which is yeah. extraordinary considering he won five ranking events mm. just a, you know, a season or two ago. So I think, yeah, there is a problem there. The only country in the world where there's been a boom without having a top player to accompany it is Germany, of course. Yeah, yeah well, they well, they don't seem to that interested in playing. So, Phil, you've, you've been covering the game a long time. What, what would be your favourite country of all the ones you've visited for, for tournaments? Oh, well, Thailand, without any shadow of doubt. We had so much fun out there. Weather was great, food was great, you know, the nightlife, not going to deny it, wonderful. You know, we, we just had a, a tremendous time. Everybody enjoyed themselves. The, the atmosphere was second to none, and as it turned out as well, although sometimes conditions were really, really tough. I remember one occasion we were playing a tournament at the Montien Riverside Hotel near the Chao Priya River, and it was during the 
rainy season as well, and with the rain plus the humidity from the river, the tables were like sludge. So conditions weren't always the best. But we had some great finals out there, and yeah, I think they're my best memories. And I think also you, you sort of get to know the players better, don't you, when you travel, because you're all kind of in the hotel together, and you, you've, you know, you're kind of away from home, you're away from the regular grind of the, the British circuit. Yeah, and you know, I think players who enjoyed being overseas, like Mark Williams, who did really well in ranking events in China and Thailand, I think obviously they prospered. But it wasn't just that. John Parra did really well. Yeah, uh, and he didn't like going away from home. He hated it. <laughs> but the fact was, when he was away, he just took used it to, seriously. Yeah, took yeah. it very seriously indeed. He practiced an awful lot. He used to do the, the Times crossword and get his head down. The first ever ranking event he won was in Deauville in France. At the time, I was still playing pretty badly, but still playing. I took my cue out there, and after I'd finished my work at night, he used to come down to the practice room, which was right next to the, the press room, and we played countless frames against each other, mm. all of which he won, by the way. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, because he was so dedicated that week and he played so much snooker, he ended up winning the event, beating Terry Griffiths in the final. So when he was overseas, he, he, he relished it, really. Mm. Okay, well, thanks, Phil, and uh, to wherever you were, you are listening to this in the world. Thanks for listening. Cheers. Sports Social Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.